Hi, this is Mike Delavan and Mike Posey, and, and you're, you're listening, listening to Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas. Hi, everybody, and welcome once again. I'm Pastor Tim with Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas, and it's my joy to be with you on this first Sunday of October, October 2nd. And welcome to part seven of our sermon series called God Goes to War. Today's sermon is called The War to End All Wars, and we'll be looking at Revelation chapter 16, verses 1 to 16. But before we go there, let's take a moment to pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for the amazing opportunity we have to study your word today, to hear from it. Lord, give us ears to hear. Thank you for all that have come to listen and or be with us in person or watch this video. Lord, to you be all the honor and glory for this because we know when the word goes out, it never comes back void. We thank you for all of this in the mighty and amazing name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. The book of Revelation is about a war to end all wars. How many of you have ever heard of the word Armageddon? Armageddon means the last battle between good and evil before the day of judgment. And it will take place on the plain of Estralon, south of present-day Haifa in Israel, a place known as Megiddo. Today, we're going to find out just what Armageddon means for us. In preparing for this sermon, I came across an article that spoke about a revival that was held many years ago in Richmond, Indiana. The advertisement for the event said that the revivalist was going to tell about the second coming of Christ and his topics would include the rapture, the rebuilding of the temple, and the battle to end all battles, Armageddon. Part of the advertisement bragged that the revivalist was working to bring about the second coming of Christ. He said he had personally gone to Jerusalem and had tried to lay stones in the temple area that he declared would be the beginning of the rebuilding of the temple. And he boasted that this action had caused a riot and several people had been hurt. Now I thought about that for a minute and it was clear there's a couple of problems with this man's claims. First is a theological problem. According to the man's theology, before Christ could come again, the temple needed to be built in Jerusalem where various animal sacrifices would be made in order to please God. So what's the problem with that, you say? Folks, God doesn't need a temple. You are his temple now. 1 Corinthians 3.16 tells us, Don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God lives in you? And God doesn't need any animal sacrifices either. You know why? Because Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. Hebrews 9.12 tells us, With his, meaning Jesus, own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most high place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. There's no longer any need for a sacrifice. Jesus offered the best and there's nothing to be added to that. That's the theological problem with this man's claims. But there's also a psychological problem. As I'm reading this story, I'm thinking, this guy is just nuts. He's crazy. And more than that, he's dangerous. He really believed that by creating the kind of conflict in Jerusalem, he could usher in a war that would culminate in Armageddon and that this would bring about the return of Christ to earth. And he was so committed to this delusional theology that he bragged about creating a riot. In other words, he was excited about getting people hurt. Folks, that's just nuts. But where did he get his delusional ideas? Well, he probably got them from the same place many people got them when they were younger and bought into this kind of thinking. 
Do any of you remember a popular book written back in 1970 by Hal Lindsey? Do you remember what it was called? That's right, it was called The Late Great Planet Earth. It was an exciting and fairly well-written book. That is, if you didn't know much about scripture, the story was well-crafted and his reasoning seemed very convincing. And do you know what Lindsay taught? He taught that Jesus would return by 1988 and that after a seven-year period of tribulation, Jesus would visibly appear in 1995 and fight the final battle of Armageddon and thus would begin his millennial reign, the thousand years on earth. Well, just in case you didn't get the paper that morning, that didn't happen. Then along came Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson, and they believed Lindsay had missed things by just a few years. They predicted that by the year 2000, Russia would lead a vast horde of armies that would descend on Israel at a place called Armageddon, and that would bring about the final battle. Well, that didn't happen either. You know, after a while, you begin to realize that maybe these guys don't have a clue what they're talking about. So what is this about Armageddon? Here we go. Get your Bible or Bible apps out. Turn to Revelation 16. Let's look at verses 12 to 16. They read, Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great Euphrates River, and it dried up so that the kings of the east could march their armies toward the west without hindrance. And I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs leap from the mouths of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. They are demonic spirits who work miracles and go out to all the rulers of the world to gather them for battle against the Lord on the great judgment day of God Almighty. Look, I will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Blessed are all who are watching for me, who keep their clothing ready so they will not have to walk around naked and ashamed. And the demonic spirits gathered all the rulers and their armies to a place with the Hebrew name Armageddon. According to folks like Lindsay, Falwell, and Robertson, Armageddon is a place otherwise known as Megiddo. Now, Armageddon is a compound Hebrew word. The first two letters, A-R, mean mountain. The remaining part of the word, Megiddo, could be rendered Megiddo. Megiddo was a biblical city that was built on a large hill in the northern part of Israel, just south of Nazareth. It overlooks a beautiful sprawling valley that's been the site of numerous bloody battles during the days of Joshua and the judges and the kings of Israel. In fact, the last known battle to have taken place there was during World War I when the Allies fought the Turks in 1918. Megiddo's location was strategically important in the days of ancient Israel. In fact, Solomon used the city as a place to keep his horses and chariots. During my last trip to Israel in 1996, I got to visit Megiddo. Now, it's a cool place to visit, but we need to understand something. Hear me now. There actually is no such place that is called Armageddon. The only time that you ever read about this name Armageddon is right here in Revelation 16. Other than that, there is no geological location named Armageddon. Now, it's true that the word Armageddon could be translated Mountain of Megiddo. But as our guide told us during that trip, Megiddo is located on a hill, not a mountain. Now, I've been there. There are lots of mountains nearby. In fact, Israel is dominated by mountains. But Megiddo is on a hill. There's a big difference. Now, one scholar, John Rushdoony, states, and I quote, There are no mountains of Megiddo, only the plains of Megiddo, end quote. Let me repeat something. Despite what you may have heard, there is not a place in Israel called Armageddon. 
the only reason anyone believes Armageddon is at Megiddo is because there's a bunch of guys that just decided that's where it ought to be. Now, why would God use the name of a place that doesn't even exist? Well, if it's not the name of the place, then it's the name itself that must mean something to God. Now, I've checked several sources, and I've found that Armageddon can be translated Mountain of Gathering, Mountain of Misery, and Mountain of Sorrow. So back to what I said at the beginning of this sermon, Armageddon represents the war between good and evil, between God and Satan. The name creates an imagery of God gathering his enemies together for judgment to experience misery and sorrow. And despite what you may have heard, Revelation is not about Armageddon. Armageddon is only mentioned once, folks, but Revelation is about one long story of war, a war to end all wars. It begins in chapter 6, where we find God bringing pain and misery on his enemies. He pours out bowls filled with judgment against those who have opposed him. He sounds trumpets to bring swift punishment upon evil. And then we get to chapter 14, two chapters before we read about Armageddon, and we see this, Revelation 14:20. The grapes were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress in a stream about 180 miles long and as high as a horse's bridle. Then in chapter 17, after Armageddon, we read this, Revelation 17, verses 12 to 14. The ten horns of the beast are ten kings who have not yet risen to power. They will be appointed to their kingdoms for one brief moment to reign with the beast. They will all agree to give him their power and authority. Together, they will go to war against the lamb, but the lamb will defeat them because he is Lord of lords and king of all kings, and his called and chosen and faithful ones will be with him. Then we read in chapter 19, verses 19 through 21. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the world and their armies gathered together to fight the one sitting on the horse and his army. And the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who did mighty miracles on behalf of the beast, miracles that deceived all who had accepted the mark of the beast and who worshipped his statue. Both the beast and his false prophet were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Their entire army was killed by the sharp sword that came out of the mouth of the one riding the white horse. As I said earlier, Revelation describes one long war between good and evil. It's called the war to end all wars, and Armageddon is only one small part of it. And this is not even a physical war of bows and arrows or guns or tanks or aircraft. Notice what verse 21 said. The entire army was killed by the sharp sword that came from the mouth of the one riding the white horse. Well, who's sitting on the horse? If you said Jesus, you're absolutely right. And where do we see the sword? It's coming out of his mouth. This is not a description of a physical battle. This is a spiritual battle with eternal consequences. So what does that mean for us? First, it means you and I are part of a war to end all wars. And how we view that war will determine how we fight the war. Now, I think there's two ways churches fight this war. The first group has a fortress mentality. In other words, they're on the defensive. People in this type of church seek to defend their territory. The bad people, the evil world, are out there, outside the walls. This church believes it wins its battle if they can keep their castle clean and undefiled. And their purpose in life is to protect themselves, their agendas, and their building. Sometimes they'll even go so far as to make sure that no one who has really sinned comes to their church. Outsiders are always suspect in these churches 
and outsiders are people who've been at the church less than 10 years. These people often approach the battle in fear, fear that their comfortable church and their comfortable worship might be threatened. The second kind of church has the take the battle to the enemy mentality. They aren't focused on defending their personal church as much as they aim to make Satan defend his. Jesus said he would build his church and as Matthew 16, 18 says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Did you catch that? The gates of hell? Gates are not an offensive weapon. Gates are built to protect a fortress. So yeah, Satan has a fortress. And Jesus designed his church to beat down the gates of that fortress. That's our objective when we go to war. Our goal is to attack Satan's fortress. Several years ago, I read a story about a pastor who said he had a discussion with several atheists via email. They had challenged him because they'd run across some of his sermon illustrations on his church's website that included a set of stories and quotes about atheism. This pastor said that at first he didn't want to answer because he was intimidated by them. After thinking about it for a while, he came to the realization of why he was intimidated. The answer was that they didn't have anything they thought to defend. All they were concerned about was attacking his faith. He said from that day on, he committed himself to be on the offensive, to make them defend something, and he did. Folks, that's what the church is called to do. We are called to attack the gates of Satan's fortress, to take back the prisoners he has enslaved to his will. That's why 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5 say, We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. We capture their rebellious thoughts and teach them to obey Christ. So the church should be a place where all kinds of people are welcome, even people who haven't always lived churchy kind of lives even people who might feel ashamed of how they've lived. A good friend of mine and his wife visited us here at Word of Hope Christian Church not long ago, and he paid the church a high compliment, and I share this with you, to God be the glory for it all. He told me that this was such a friendly congregation that he could have had 666 tattooed on his forehead, and he would have still been welcome there. That's the kind of church Jesus died to create, the kind of church that refuses to be afraid of people who aren't like them. Rick Grover, lead pastor at the East 91st Street Christian Church in Indianapolis, compared these two mindsets we've been talking about on their church website. Here's what it says, and I quote, A fortress is a place to keep all the good people in and keep all the bad people out. A mission outpost is a place to train people in order to send them out to find the bad people. A fortress is a place of high walls to protect it from the world. A mission outpost doesn't have any walls. They aren't on defense. They're on offense. A fortress focuses on what's going on inside their walls. A mission outpost focuses more on what's going on outside their personal boundaries. A fortress is a place where people complain about the food and how their needs or wants are not being met. People in a mission outpost don't have time to complain about the food or their wants because they're on a mission, and that mission is to take down the very gates of hell. Then Pastor Grover said this, Guess what my prayer is for the American church? You got it. Not that we get more money or better church programs or nicer padded pews. My prayer is that the Holy Spirit fans into flame our passion to serve as a mission outpost and forsake our fortress mentality. End quote. So the message of Revelation, my friends, is we are at war. 
and war is never a pleasant business. And our war with Satan will not be pleasant. He has no intention of just rolling over and playing dead for us. Satan intends to get a few shots in on his own, and he intends to hurt us. Folks, there's going to be times when Satan will unleash his worst on you, and you won't be able to do a thing about it. All you'll be able to do is what God's people have done for time in and time out, and that is to lean on the Good Shepherd who's promised to lead you even through the valley of the shadow of death. But then I noticed something else as I was studying Revelation. A few minutes ago, we read Revelation 19, verses 19 to 21. Let me read that again. Follow along, because there's an odd thing here. Verse 19, Then I saw the beast and the kings of the world and their armies gathered together to fight against the one sitting on the horse and his army. And the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who did mighty miracles on behalf of the beast, miracles that deceived all who had accepted the mark of the beast and who worshipped his statue. Both the beast and his false prophet were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Their entire army was killed by the sharp sword that came from the mouth of the one riding the white horse. Did you catch that? Go back to verse 19. Jesus comes against the enemy with an entire army. Do you see that? But it doesn't look like the army does anything, does it? It's almost like Jesus is doing all the fighting. The sword comes from his mouth and the army's just standing in the background. It's like Christ's forces are nothing more than eye candy. What's that all about? Well, this is what it's all about. We win the battle only when we follow Jesus. It's by his name and his name alone that we destroy Satan. The sword from his mouth is the mark of our victory. This is what we need to understand, that Jesus is our champion. We are nothing without him, but with him, we can scale the very walls of hell. We can take down and tear down the gates of Satan's kingdom. Years ago, I read a powerful article that was published by Southeast Christian Church in Louisville, Kentucky, in one of their weekly newsletters, and I'd like to close this sermon with it right now. It said, Jesus, a little name, a small word. Say this little name in public, however, in a way other than an obscenity, and stand back and watch the fireworks. This little name is like a detonator that triggers a nuclear warhead. You can say God and you won't get a squeak. You can say Our Father or Mother in Heaven, a few will flinch. You can say Great Spirit and people will nod in approval. You can say Allah and you'll be deemed tolerant. But say Jesus and just wait for the explosion. Articles will appear in the paper, reprimands will be posted from the home office, lawsuits will be threatened by the Civil Liberties Union. So don't say Jesus. Jesus is divisive, and now's a time for unity. Jesus is an extremist, and that must mean right wing. Jesus is exclusive, so his name amounts to hate speech. Keep his name to yourself. Cloister it in your church. Lock it in your prayer closet. Close it between the covers of your Bible. But for God's sake, don't voice it in the public square. It's immodest. It's immoral. It's unloving. Only one problem. Jesus is God. Only one problem. Jesus alone brings salvation. Only one problem. All other gods are nothing. So speak his name aloud, it said. Shout it from the mountain. Whisper it in the dark. Write it in the sky. Because the name of Jesus is not hate. It's hope. To God be the glory. And I pray that he is your hope today. Thanks for listening. 
Join us again next time for another encouraging message from God's Word. To find out more about our ministry, look us up on the web at www.whccnb.org. Word of Hope Christian Church. Real people. A real God. Real hope.